0: Everyone, welcome to Victory Baptist Church this morning. Let's go ahead and stand as we get started with a Christmas song, Joy to the World, page 100.
1: good morning and welcome to the service this morning I almost said good evening Uh, and so it's not been that long of a morning really I just tend to say good morning in the evening time uh, just to watch everybody's reaction sometimes and so but it's good to see everybody here I hope that you're having uh, a good week this week and recovering from Thanksgiving and I was thinking about that and I was walking around I asked somebody this morning how the Thanksgiving was because I wasn't here and I'm thinking Wait a minute, have I been back on a Sunday since Thanksgiving already? But no, we haven't. This is the first one after. And so uh, it's terrible to get old. Your mind just starts going all kinds of places and doing all kinds of things and uh, and not working the way that it's supposed to. And so, but uh, I'm glad to see everyone here. I hope that you've had a good week and looking forward to a wonderful Uh, Christmas season as we get into this time of the year. Uh, And so we just stop and reflect and praise the Lord and worship Him for His loving us enough to leave heaven and to come to earth and to bear the burden of our sin and to make a way for us to have an eternal home in heaven. What a blessing it is to have a God that loves us so. Uh, and may we love him as well. And so, it's, But it's great to have you here. Welcome. If you're a guest today, if it's your first time here and you're new to Victory, please take a moment and fill out the connection card. We'd love to visit with you at the table out in the lobby by the screen uh, Welcome at the Welcome Center on your way out. May we have a gift for you there, and there'll be folks there to greet you and, and answer any questions that you may have uh, about our church here. And so we'd love to, to get acquainted in that way. But so, again, welcome. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. And we'll continue worshiping the Lord together. Father, thank you this morning for your love for us. Thank you for... Lord, the wonderful uh, blessing uh, of the hope of salvation provided when you, our Savior, came to this earth. Lord, I thank you for your miraculous birth. I thank you for your sacrificial death, and Lord, and the miraculous resurrection. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is that we, too, uh, can live a resurrected life. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified as your worship. And then, as we open your word, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would open uh, our hearts to the word of God. Lord, may we be convicted of our sin. Or may we be drawn closer to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that's never trusted you as our Savior, we pray that today, uh, Lord, they would come to place their faith and trust in you uh, and seek forgiveness for their sin and to uh, be born into the family of God. What a wonderful thing it would be if someone found you today. Lord, make it so. And meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Let's remain standing as we continue singing Amazing Grace. We change our song this morning. And so sing this out as we continue. and be seated as we sing one more song before the message Jesus painted all page number 185
1: let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 7. And so we're not, you announce this time of the year, you announce Luke and everybody starts turning to chapter 2 and gets ready for Christmas. We're not uh, having a Christmas message just yet. And so uh, we we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter number 7 this morning. And we'll begin reading here in verse number 36 and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. It's great to see A good number of guests today, some returning. And so thank you for being here, making the effort to come back. We're honored to have you and others. uh, It's good to have you some for the first time. It's good to see Brother Steve from over at Cornerstone in Missouri City. God bless you. And thank you for being here today. And, And we praise the Lord for Uh, good friends in ministry and other places that can pop in from time to time. So thank you for being here. Uh, Others, and so that maybe you were, some of, we've got some COVID survivors here this morning too. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to point you out because if people didn't know, then I don't want to treat, I don't want to treat you like lepers on your way out this morning. They've been (laughs) sufficiently quarantined uh, and they'll be okay. They're safe to be around. And so uh, but we're grateful for God's touch of healing and, and whenever, folks, I've been made aware just yesterday of several pastors that that are currently have it. And so I certainly know what that's all about. And so I appreciate uh, prayers for one another as we uh, open the message in prayer this morning. And for those in churches that are uh, without their pastor for, you know, at least a week or two, and maybe if our case was six weeks, I think I was down. So I uh, pray that the Lord will give them speedy recoveries. But Luke chapter number seven um, beginning verse number 36, and one of the Pharisees desired him, speaking of Jesus, of course, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at his feet <clears throat> behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears. And did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on there was a certain creditor, which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him most? And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? Are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go, in peace. I want to speak this morning on this thought. Loved. Has forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and for its power. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you promised when we assemble together in your name that you meet with us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher, our guide, our dweller. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and instruct us this morning. Lord, we need your conviction about our sin. Lord, we need you to speak to our hearts and to help us to see clearly our own standing and position with our Savior. And Lord, may we not hide behind the sins of others. May we not have a distorted and polluted view of the reality of our existence. But may we truly see ourselves in the way that you see us. Lord, may we realize this morning that the way in which we live shares to those around us what we truly believe. Lord, help us to be true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be obedient servants, not because it is a duty that's been thrown upon us, but because of a great love that we have when we realize the great depths of sin from which we've been saved. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and amen. I don't know about you, but this time of the year is kind of like, I kind of tend to think that most people are hardwired this way, like God has just kind of hardwired this into our DNA. But maybe not, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just a, a weird... Uh, kind of a freak of nature in this sort of thing. But, uh, but when I, we get to Thanksgiving, and from Thanksgiving until about the middle of January, I'm in a reset mode. I don't, I don't plan it. I mean, I do plan it, but it's not like I have to kind of urge myself to get there. There are a lot of things that I put on a calendar that I have to really urge myself to get involved in. Then there are some things that are there that it's just like they're just natural. And for me, it's always just kind of been that once we get to this time of the year, uh, evaluation of where we've been and uh, planning about where we're going uh, and then evaluation of self, my own, my own, uh, from a personal level, uh, I evaluate myself in, in every Context and, and you know from uh, every role, every hat that I wear. Uh, primarily, the most important of those things is my spiritual walk with God. It, it needs to be reeval. I don't know, reevaluate it just at this time of the year, but it seems like at this time of the year, it's just natural for me that it comes. It, it's it's in a different level. Uh, there are two or three books that I tend to read almost every year. I try to read them every year. That process will probably. Uh, start here in the next week or so uh, and then by the end of January or mid-February I'll have two or three books that I read every year that I'll uh, and they just help me refocus they help me reevaluate they help me reset things uh, to make sure that I have not gotten into this drift the the reality of life is is that we all drift Uh, you ever started a diet Uh, Have you ever started uh, an exercise routine? Have you ever started, uh, uh, you know, a a plan for how you're going to maintain your house? And when you first come up with an idea and you first come up with a plan, then you jump in and you're all gung-ho and you're all in and you're really disciplined and really diligent. Uh, and then as time moves on and progress is made, we begin to let up. We don't feel the pressure. And so we just kind of let up and then uh, things just kind of drift. And before you know it, we're right back into doing the things that we were doing uh, before we had to start out on uh, some, some uh, fix in the first place. And so, uh, you know, that, that's kind of my, uh, my, my point. And I think that it's only natural that we as Christians understand That in life, our natural tendency as human beings is to drift. If you have a time when God really grabs a hold of your heart and you're really excited about what God's doing in your life, uh, and you begin to get more faithful to church, you begin to get active in outreach ministries, you begin to uh, get more involved in reading your Bible and more serious about your prayer life and uh, more interested in what's going on in the ministries of the church's missionaries and things of that nature, and then uh, time passes passes and uh, it's not that you don't care about those things, it's just other things creep up and other things become distractions and and before you know it, you've just kind of drifted. You know, a lot of times if you get out somewhere, it's a dangerous thing to do if you're driving, but you know, have you ever been at a lake or on a beach somewhere and get out in the water and you're just kind of relaxing and floating on a raft or something and then uh, before you know it, you're much farther from shore than what you ever wanted to go. And, and you, you don't realize it until it's like almost kind of frightening because you're out uh, too far. And uh, that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing that we just kind of naturally drift into uh, in life. And so uh, that is uh, the kind of attitude that you see in a man like Simon. So when you look in our text this morning, uh, when you look at the life of Simon, Simon is a, a spiritual leader. He is uh, a Pharisee. He is uh, a member of the ruling class. He is involved in the worship and the leading of, uh, of his synagogue, or at least is highly regarded in his community. Uh, and so there's an expectation of him. There's an expectation that whenever a guest preacher Comes through, or a prophet comes through, that there be some hospitality shown. We have that same expectation today. We do the same thing if we have a missionary that comes through. There, there are expectations that uh, you know a missionary always comes expecting uh, nothing, but there are expectations of what most normal churches would do to help meet their needs. For example, if a missionary were here this morning, uh, we would have uh, we would have offered them lodging overnight, and if they were going to be here all day for two nights. We would have provided their meals. We would have given them uh, a, an opportunity to address the congregation, to preach. They would get uh, a love offering to help compensate them for their time and help cover the expenses of their travel uh, to come here. And so those are things that, uh, that are expected. They would expect to have an opportunity to speak with the pastor, to present their burden, not just publicly, but privately, uh, to share their burdens, to share what those are expectations Now, when those things come about, those are all reasonable expectations. Uh, They don't always get met. Those expectations are not always met, and sometimes they're met at varying degrees. Sometimes a pastor can be really excited about a particular missionary in their field and where they're called, where they're going, what God's given them to do. At other times, uh, maybe there's something that the pastor sees in the character of the missionary when they arrive that kind of of steals a little bit of his uh, excitement about their being there. I've been through the gamut of all of those things over 20 plus years of ministry where, uh, you know, someone came in. I wasn't real excited before they got there, but once they got there, it was just like a kindred spirit and a bond. And like, you know, we couldn't spend enough time together. Uh, At other times, there's so much other things, so many other things going on in the ministry that it's hard to give them the time that they deserve. And so you always try to plan things and make that time available. But in Simon's case, he finds himself in a similar circumstance. There is this preacher that's been out roaming Israel who is stirring up a crowd everywhere that he goes. And the, the stories that are coming out are intriguing. Uh, and the message that's being, uh, being preached is compelling. And he goes about his business and he's coming into his town. And so Simon feels obligated, if you will, to host Jesus, to get better acquainted with him, uh, to figure out what he's about. Uh, and to, uh, to go through the motions of uh, what's expected of him and his role as uh, part of their spiritual leading class. And so here he is. He, he reluctantly offers and provides Jesus a meal. He clearly isn't very excited about it. They say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Well, I, I believe that because uh, the fact that he disrespects him with rudeness when he comes into his home. Uh, he comes in and Jesus is not hailed and brought in as an honored guest. He's disrespected. And, and it, even today in Eastern culture, it is common for them to greet one another uh, with a kiss on either cheek. There are just certain things that are expectations to, uh, to uh, an embrace. When you go to different cultures in the world, there are different expectations. Last week, uh, we were in a service. Sonia and I were in a service and, uh, and they have... A Spanish ministry, and the the Spanish pastor there was actually, and his wife were students that my brother-in-law taught in a Christian school in Puerto Rico years ago, Uh, and he's the Spanish pastor, uh, the pastor of the Spanish church there now, and so they were were having uh, the Lord's table, or, or the Lord's supper after the morning service, and so they brought the Spanish church into the auditorium. Uh, so that they could all participate and do it together as one uh, as one church and they're getting ready. Then they went this week on a staff retreat and the pastor is really concerned about the COVID uh, and nobody, you know, maintain your social distance or every other role like we are. And uh, there were several hundred people there that day and uh, and. And he said, uh, you know, no handshaking. Go and enjoy this. And he's pointing out several things and the Christmas cards and things like that nature that they do. Uh, and he says, don't hug uh, or, or don't shake hands and, uh, and, and don't do this. And the Spanish people don't hug each other. And so everybody kind of laughed and chuckled because that's just part of the culture. Whenever uh, we, from, for, you get around that culture, that, that's a normal greeting. Uh, what is a handshake to, uh, to, you know, most European cultures uh, is a hug in Spanish. And in the Middle East, it's a kiss on either cheek and in some European countries as well. Uh, and so he doesn't greet him properly. Not only that, in their time and in their culture, uh, they're walking on dirt roads everywhere that they go. And so their feet are grimy and gritty and uh, uncomfortable. Uh, And so he comes into a meal and uh, I don't know about you, but even even in the day and age in which we live, if I've been out working in my lawn and especially in the summer months in the heat, I don't want to eat when I first come in. I need to cool off. I need to take a shower. I don't feel comfortable. I can't enjoy the meal if I feel dirty and filthy and sweaty and stinky and uh, all of all of the things that go with just kind of doing the normal routines of a, of a business day, of a work day. And so Jesus comes in and in their culture, it was customary when a guest came in and not an honored guest, just any guest to offer them a basin of water so that they could wash the grime off of their feet, their ankles and their lower legs so that they would feel refreshed and they would feel comfortable to wash their uh, face, to anoint their head and to get the grime off so that they could feel uh, more comfortable. He he doesn't do that. And Jesus makes it very clear uh, whenever he's telling him uh, in the later verses here, uh, that uh, you know in verse 44, and I entered into the house, and thou gave me no water. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. Uh, Thou gavest me no kiss, in verse 45, there wherefore I, uh, you know, my head thou didst didst not anoint, uh, in verse 46, and so he's greeted rudely, in other words, Jesus, you've come into my house, and I recognize that you're respected of the people, that you're a prophet, that you're a preacher, uh, but I'm not convinced that that anything that I've heard about you is true, and I'm obligated to let you come here, but I'm not going to show you the respect that you're that your place, that your position is deserving of. Now, this is not, is Jesus the Messiah? This is his view as Jesus as just a traveling pastor, preacher passing through, an honored guest. And so he is a man who reluctantly provides Jesus a meal. It's something that he's obligated to do. He disrespects him with rudeness by offering him no water or kiss. He looks down upon Jesus as beneath him, Which is evidenced by his thoughts. Notice in verse 39 when it says, Now when the Pharisee uh, which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known what sort of woman this was. So he's not valuing Jesus. He's not putting Jesus in a place of uh, someone that is spiritually discerning. In other words, I know more, I can discern more spiritually Jesus than you could. If you were really a prophet, you would have known what this woman was about. You wouldn't be so, so accepting of her washing your feet and crying on your feet. Uh, you would be appalled that she would have the audacity uh, to make contact with you. You'd be more concerned about your reputation. You'd be more concerned about the appearance Uh, to those that are assembled here, that are evaluating and judging and scrutinizing you and your message and what you uh, are trying to accomplish. And so the message is uh, Jesus is beneath him. And then when within his own heart, he rejects the Lord. You know, but I want you to understand about this man. You know, first of all, he doesn't even say these things out loud. He just thinks them in his heart. He says them within himself in verse 39. Then then Jesus answers him as if he had said it out loud. You would think that that would maybe get his attention. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking that. You know, there are a lot of times when I'll blurt something out and my wife will say, oh, I was just thinking that exact same thing. Uh, but but There's no response. That he just thinks that Jesus draws the conclusion or answers him uh, and paints a picture for him. Uh, and in his own heart, he's already rejected what Jesus has to say. Now I want you to understand, this is a man who is church. This is a man who is a spiritual leader in his community. This is a man that believes that he loves God with all of his heart. This is a man who's dedicated his life to serve God on some level. This is a man that would deem himself, that deems himself to know the word of God. A man who perceives himself to be uh, knowledgeable, not just of its words, but of its principles and their applications. A man that believes that he is applying them correctly to his own life. But yet he fails to even recognize the man that's coming to his home. And so Simon, here again, is a man who is religious but who has rejected the Son of God. On the other hand, you have this woman. It's kind of hard for me to believe personally. You can disagree with me if you want on this. I don't think it does any injustice to the scripture, but it's it's hard for me to imagine that this woman was an invited guest when Simon has made it clear that she's disreputable when Simon has degraded her publicly in front of everyone that's there. This isn't a private conversation, this is going on openly in front of everyone that's in the house. And while this conversation's going on, this woman is still attending to uh, anointing the feet of Jesus, weeping, broken over her sin, recognizing who he is. And so uh, this, this woman, in my mind, noticed, hey, Jesus came, where did he go? He went to Simon's house, I'm going to wait until everything gets assembled and gets going. I'm going to kind of sneak in the side door here. Now, maybe that's not the way that it went down. I'm not trying to add to what the Bible tells us, but it's hard for me to imagine that Simon willingly and openly welcomed her into his home when he, did not, when he clearly did not openly welcome Jesus into his home sincerely. And so here she is. And what does she do? Well, she, from the very moment that she enters the presence of Christ, Gives him her very best. She brings an alabaster box of ointment. Typically messages on this text focus on that alabaster box of ointment. That ointment is not really, the, it's, not the, the, it's important, but it's not the point of the message this morning. So I'm not going to really spend any time on, on that. Other than to say that it was her best. It was costly. It was sacrificial. She gave the best that she had. And so as she gives the best, she gives the very best of what she has to the very worst of what Jesus has. Jesus is grimy. We don't tend to think of him, but listen, he is is in human form here. He is a man. He is 100% man. He is also 100% God, but he is sweats. Dirt doesn't magically fall off of his body. He has to bathe. You know, sometimes it's kind of hard to imagine and think God needs to take a bath. But in this case, you know, Jesus uh, is, is probably been on the road walking across town. Uh, I mean, my grandkids come over to the house and go outside and play in the yard for 30 minutes and walk in the house and they smell like wet dogs. It's not a pleasant smell. <laughs> and so Jesus comes in. This is not Jesus at his best as far as his physical appearance and his. His preparation to uh, attend, he he had to get there. He's dirty. His feet need to be washed. His his head needs to be anointed. He needs to, uh, and, and so she's saying, I don't have to have God your best, but you're worthy of my best. And so she gives them her very best. Secondly, I would say that she recognizes the reality of her own sinful condition. As evidenced by her humility and by her tears. She came into the presence of the Messiah and she was broken over her sin. Listen, she didn't need anybody there to tell her that her sin was great in the eyes of the people. She already understood that her sin was great in the eyes of her people but more importantly she understood that her sin was great in the eyes of her God. She is not trying to cover it up. She is not trying to justify it. She is not trying to rationalize it away. She is not trying to minimize it. She is not trying to spiritualize it uh, and make it seem like it's a godly position uh, that, uh, like Simon has. She has simply come and said, I have sin in my life and that sin and the presence of the holy God breaks me. And she began to weep. And she began to weep over the feet of, of the Savior, recognizing the reality of her own sinful condition. I think it's clear by her response that she recognizes the true identity of Jesus. She realizes that this man is not merely a prophet or a preacher that's passing through. This man is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is the one that we look for. This is the one that's been, uh, been foretold. This is the one that the prophets have, uh, have told us would come. I want you to notice too that she honors him unconditionally. She did not place a condition upon her worship. She didn't say, okay, Jesus, if you wash the majority of this off your feet, then I'll clean them up really good for you. You know, I, if you went to, a, uh, I remember years ago, uh, there was a guy that came into a small church that we, our families would kind of help start in Illinois. And, uh, and there was a guy that got really involved in what was called reflexology. And it, it basically just, the, the, all of your nerve endings come to your feet, to your hands. And it was, you know, a study of, uh, and a practice of kind of massaging your hands and your feet in certain areas uh, to relieve back pain. So you rub your feet to get back relief or you rub your hands to get back relief. Well, we're driving, Sonia and I were driving, uh, doing some Christmas shopping the other day. And we uh, drove by and I saw this store off to the side that said in real big, bold letters, reflexology. And I remember, I remember whenever uh, adults in our family at that time kind of got hooked into that and got involved in it and, and uh, wanted to try it out. And you know, it's an amazing thing. Whenever they went there, the first thing that the guy had them do whenever they entered was to go and wash their feet. She didn't say to Jesus, Jesus, your feet are kind of dirty and stinky. If you'll wash them, I'll clean them up. I mean, if you go get the big stuff off, so it's not so intolerable, then I'll, no, she, she didn't care. There was no condition imposed. There is just a, this is the need. I'm going to come and I'm going to meet this, you know, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to honor you unconditionally because regardless of my condition, you're worthy. And so, so often we get into a place where uh, we don't feel as if, uh, we would never say it. We would never say uh, that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not worthy to worship God. Uh, she just realized that God was worthy of her worship no matter what her condition. She expressed a humble faith. And her expressing that humble faith to the risen Savior or to the soon to be risen Savior was enough faith to give her salvation, to give her eternal life. So we have here a crowd of people that's assembled in his room, in his house, to eat with Jesus. We have the Savior of the world, God from heaven, seated, preparing. He's not there. They're not excited that he's there. They just have to deal with his presence. You have a man who believes himself to be spiritually exalted amongst his community and peers. And he doubts that Jesus is who he says he is. Then you have a woman who sees Jesus for who he is. And she sees herself for who she is. And her response is appropriate. Question this morning. Why is it that some are consumed with a passion for God, while others are content with a casual, superficial, mediocre Christianity. Why is it that some. Get excited. When we realize what God has done for us. And some. Act as if it's. Not that big of a deal. It's just a part of my identity and who I am. And what I do. And the answer. To that question. Was given. By Jesus. To Simon in verse 47. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, here's the answer to Simon's problem. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now, the reality of this is that they were both equally forgiven. We're talking here about perception. The greater our view of our sin, the greater our view of God's forgiveness extended to pay for that sin. The greater I view God's sacrifice on my behalf, the greater my love expression to him will be in return. It takes just as much of the blood of Jesus to cleanse the soul of a prostitute as it does to cleanse the soul of a little child in Sunday school. It took just as much sacrifice for the God of heaven to cleanse the heart of an addict, to cleanse the soul of a murderer, as it does to cleanse the soul of someone that's been brought up in church all their life and has never been exposed to the things of this world. And what we see here is that there is a perception and then there is a reality. And it took just as much sacrifice for Jesus to save me as it took him to save the guy that was executed in the last couple of weeks up at a federal penitentiary. The difference between this woman and Simon was not their sin, but their personal view of it. Your ability this morning to love God with all your heart and to be involved and obedient to the word of God and to the will of God and to sacrifice and to submit yourself to God given authority and to surrender your life to what God has laid in store without justifying all the reasons why you think it's okay for you to not do what God has said. That love is evidenced by our willingness to appreciate what God has forgiven us of. I cannot hold back from God if I perceive that God has forgiven me of great sin. The problem with most of us is that we don't feel like we've been forgiven that much. We understand verbally what I'm saying this morning to be true. But the practicality of its evidence in our life is that we live and function like Simon I'm a good person. I don't have a lot of big sin in my life. I don't have things that cause people to be concerned or worried or, uh, or uh, to feel like uh, that, that, that I, I'm not really who I, I pretend to be. Uh, and we view ourselves in such a way and we have an unrealistic view of our sin. And so the first thing that we need to understand this morning as we look at this is the reality of our sin. And the reality of our sin is this, is that sin, all sin, separates from God. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, you find in chapter 20 and verse 14, in chapter 21 and verse 8, you essentially have here the white throne judgment, the coming of the end, the final judgment of God. And I understand this morning that theologically, the people that are being judged here are lost people. Now the reality is, if you want to get really technical, everyone's being judged. It's just that those that are judged to be written in the Lamb's book of life have been pulled out and set aside. And then those that refuse to receive Christ are being judged and sentenced and that sentence is being executed. And so God gives us uh, the, the, the end game here, where this is all going to lead. And so you say, well, pastor, I'm saved. That doesn't apply to me. Well, it may not apply to your condition or your position within Christ, but the reality of what it does to us in, in regards to our fellowship with God is fully applicable. I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, but the fearful and the unbelieving And the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. When I'm leading someone through the gospel that does not know Jesus as their Savior and I get to this verse I always stop when we get to, okay, uh, when we read through it. Then I'll say, now I want you to kind of put this in context here for a moment. And I want you to consider what it's saying. How many people do I have to kill before you would call me a murderer? Uh Well, just one. Well, stick with that logic. How many lies do I have to tell before you call me a liar? The answer can't be one and then some other number. My friends, we're all liars. Well, Pastor, my lie was just a small lie. It doesn't say, it doesn't make a distinction here between the size of the lie. It it doesn't make an exception here for the lie that was told just to hurt someone's, to to spare someone's feelings. It doesn't make an exception here uh, for the lie that was told to uh, keep someone from getting in trouble. All liars shall have their part in the lake the point is for the christian it's a separating factor from god the real penalty of our sin in in hell and in the lake of fire is not the fir- the fire and the burning and the falling and the in the horror it is being separated from god for eternity And when we realize that sin separates from God, I I have to understand that as God's child, I am not separated from his family, but I can be separated from his presence. And too many Christians are living life thinking God forgave my sin. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. But my sin's really not that big of a deal anymore because after all, my sin's not a big sin. I'm not stealing from people. I'm not abusing people. I'm not doing this drug or or partaking in this thing that we classify in our own human mind and heart as big sins. The reality is is that sin is sin and sin separates from God. And when I view my sin as anything less than then that which separates me from God, then I have a Simon view of sin and not the woman who gave herself to Christ's view of sin. And when we look and when we consider the reality of our sin, it's that sin, all sin separates from God. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, he says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The final death. The death of the spirit separated from God. So we have to understand the reality of my sin is that my sin separated me from God. I'm grateful this morning that while sin separates from God and secondly, sin produces death, that Jesus is the solution to that problem. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin, for the wages of sin is death. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I'm preaching primarily to those that are in church, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior this morning, those that have received Him. You know you're a child of God, you know you're part of His family, uh, and making application here. And what I'm saying is that sin produces death. But, Pastor, I have Jesus as my Savior. Sin can't produce death. Listen, the moment that you were born, you began to die. If you're in your 20s, it may be hard for you to believe. If you're a teenager, it's impossible for you to believe and understand. But if you're 53, like I am, you understand it well. And if you're 83, you really understand it. And if you're somewhere in between, you understand it to varying degrees. Now, I'm dying. I'm not proclaiming that I have some terminal disease this morning. I'm saying this morning that the result of sin and its curse upon the earth has put me in a place where I am decaying, where I'm dying. I can't run as fast at 53 as I did at 23. I'm not as strong at 53 as I was at 23. There are things that my mind still thinks my body can do that my body very quickly lets me know it can no longer do. There are things that I can suck it up and do, but I pay for it for a really long time when I get done. I'm dying. The wages of sin is death. Death. It doesn't mean that it's going to put me in hell because I can't go to hell because Jesus forgave my sin and I was born into the family of God. But I can decay spiritually to the point that I am no longer of value or use or service to my God. I'm just telling you this morning, there are a lot of churches across the world that are filled with Christians that think that their sin's not that bad and and, and compared to everyone else, they're okay and they are sitting and they are rotting in the pew if they even bother to come because they have a self-righteous view of their sin and they don't think it's that big of a deal and they fail to realize that spiritually though they may read their Bible and pray and feel themselves to be on some higher spiritual plane, the reality is is that they are just sinners saved by the grace of God and because they have a distorted view of their sin, they are worthless in the economy and the service of the Savior. They can't tell you the last time that they influenced the soul to trust Christ. They can't tell you the last time that they discipled someone personally. They can't tell you the last time that they did any other thing than spiritualize why they don't do what they should do. That's what Simon's done. The reality of my sin is that it separates me from God. And that it produces death. The reality of sin is this, that sin is sin. That in my mind and in your mind, there's a great distinction between sin. A little white lie and a murder is two completely different categories of sin. But in God's economy, when it comes to being separated from Him in fellowship, and when it, becomes, when it comes to my salvation and my need of His forgiveness, there's no distinction. Sin is sin. It is a violation of the character and the person of Jesus Christ. And the reality of my sin is that sin is sin. And that's a concept that Simon could not accept. There's no way that Simon could accept the fact that he was just as vile and wicked a sinner as that woman was. There's no way that he could accept that she, uh, that she was more worthy of his love and forgiveness than Simon was. That was his perception. But that was not reality. We look and we consider, I remember sitting in an office in a boys ranch that I was directing on September 11th in 2001. I remember my phone ringing, I picked it up it was my mom and she said, hey, watch the news, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I thought, yeah, big deal, it's probably just like a little Cessna or something like that, you know, stuff like that doesn't happen all the time, but it was, in my mind, it was hard for me to imagine uh, a Cessna, uh, you know, doing a whole lot of damage. And I was busy, and so I thought, well, I'll just watch the news later. Then someone comes in and says, another plane hit. And it's not just a little plane like you're thinking. It's a, so I left. I went home. I turned the TV on and watched in horror like you, most of many of you did. People jumping off the top of burning buildings, 100 plus stories to their death. I watched when the first tower came down. Then I watched when the second tower came down. I wanna tell you something this morning. It didn't matter at the moment that the tower collapsed if you were on the 105th floor or the 50th floor or the 10th floor or the 5th floor. It didn't matter how close you were to freedom and to safety. What mattered was that you were still there when the building collapsed. And when that building started coming down, nobody was getting out. There was no escape. And what I'm saying this morning is that there is no escape from sin, and there is no less suffering. For the person in the long run, for the person that's on the fifth floor when it comes crashing down, as a person that's on the 99th floor when it comes crashing down. Sin is sin. The reality of my sin is that it separates me from God. My friends, this morning, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it will separate you from God for all of eternity. Christian. Your sin may not separate you from God for eternity, but it will separate you from God's blessing and God's power and God's presence in your life right here and now. Secondly, this morning, consider the reality of my salvation. There's the reality of my sin, but then there's the reality of salvation. And this woman here places her faith in the loving Savior, and she receives the freedom from the bondage of her sin whenever Christ forgives her. Jesus did not die over and over again and Jesus does not suffer over and over again. Listen, there are religions today that teach and preach that Jesus suffers every Sunday when you partake of communion, when you walk down and you take that wafer that it comes alive and it becomes his flesh and he's suffering for the sins all over again. That's not biblical. The Bible says he died once Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10, speaking of the Lord says, By the which we were all sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He died for everyone. He didn't die for an elect few. He didn't die uh, for one random here and there. He didn't go through and handpick this person I love and this person I don't. He died once for all. The reality of salvation is that Jesus died once for all. But the reality of that is that twofold. First, the cost of that was the same for every sin. That death, that sacrifice cost him the same. Cost the same sacrifice. Cost the same spillage of blood. Cost the same beating of the stripes of the cat of nine tails cost just as much, every sin cost just as many piercings through his head from the thorns into his scalp. It's all the same. The cost was the same for every sin. There's no, my sin is not as bad as your sin. There's no, my sin is not as bad as it used to be. There's no, my sin's not as big of a deal as someone else's sin. It doesn't matter how you spin it. It doesn't matter how you justify it. It doesn't matter how you self-righteously declare that it's just not that big of a deal. Sin is sin, and it sent Christ to a cross. The cost was the same for every sin because, secondly, sin is sin. And that, again, is a concept that Simon just could not accept. The second thing I would say, not only did Jesus die once for all, but I would say that saving faith comes only after I see my need. The difference between Simon and this woman is that that this woman saw her need. Simon never saw his need. Simon didn't need anything. He was a godly man. Simon didn't need the message of Christ. He was a leader in the synagogue. He was respected in the community. He had positions of power and prominence and authority. This woman was nobody. She needed him. Simon didn't think he did. The reality is they both needed him. Amen. Yeah. I'm just saying this morning, it doesn't matter what our perception is. What matters is reality. Amen. The reality is, is that we all need a Savior because we all owe sin. And listen, and here's the difference. This woman owes a million dollar debt on a five dollar an hour job. And Simon owes a million dollar debt on a five million dollar an hour job. He didn't think he needed to be forgiven for much. She felt as if no matter what she did, no matter how long she worked, no matter what she tried, she could never pay the debt. And here comes Jesus to forgive. She saw that she had a need. He never saw his need. And the problem with Christians and churches today, the reason that we can't commit, the reason that we won't sacrifice, the reason that we don't spend time in prayer, the reason that we don't, Uh, that we don't view the Christian life as important as generations past have is because we simply don't see the need. I'm telling you this morning, we need Jesus. Thirdly, this morning, lastly, not only have we seen the reality of our sin and the reality of His saving grace, but thirdly, consider the reality of my service. The reality of my service is this. It's threefold. Number one, I serve in proportion to my love. I had a conversation with someone earlier this week and they began to tell me in the conversation something about different people in their life loving the Lord that were not doing godly things. I stopped the person and I said, wait a minute. That sounds good. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying that they don't believe that they love the Lord. But it's not true. Because the truth is, is that we live what we believe. We act upon what we believe. If I believe something I live accordingly. And we as God's people preach a message oftentimes that we fail to live. The reality this morning is of my service is that I serve in proportion to my love. Listen, God doesn't need a lot of people that are coerced and high pressured into serving him because they're duty bound. God wants service that's given because we want to express our love to our Savior. How much do I love him? Is telling others about Christ too much of an ask? Do I love him that little? Is giving, is helping, is making a disciple? Listen, I serve in proportion to my love. Don't you notice in John, John's gospel in chapter 14 in verse 15. And Jesus said, if ye love me. If ye love me. Keep my commandments. All you've got to do to express your love to me is keep my commandments. The converse of that is also true. A failure to not keep the commandments of Christ is an expression of a lack of love for him. We would never say, I don't love you, Lord. But in essence, when we do not keep his commandments, that's what we're saying to him. I've commanded you thus. Why aren't you doing it? The reality is, we give excuses. Well, I was tired, or I was late, or I had this come up, or this person needed this, or some I had some other obligation, or I had to do this. The reality is, and the correct response is, because I don't love you enough. This is reality. The reality of my service is that I serve in proportion to my love. And if I love, I will abide in Christ. In John chapter 15 and verse number 10, the passage of abiding in Christ that was spoken by the Lord to his disciples as they moved from the upper room at the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. In verse 10, he says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, And abide in his love. Listen, it's it's incomprehensible to me to think that there was ever a time when Jesus would have considered not keeping his father's commandment because he was always abiding with his father. He loved him. He served him. We don't keep his commandments because we don't walk with him. We don't abide with him. We simply don't love him enough that we cannot live without his presence in our lives. When Jesus is gone, do you miss him? I, I let my wife go out to Arizona a few days early before Thanksgiving. And so uh, I drove out on Monday. I let her go out on, th- on Thursday. I want to tell you, my house was awful lonely for three or four days. Now, I was busy. I had a lot of things going on. Uh, I, I, I really didn't have time to sit and dwell on anything or think too much. Uh, I had a lot of things to get ready and prepare. Uh, but I'm just telling you that it was lonely, and I was excited. To get there. So almost 1,100 miles. I had planned to stop in Las Cruces and, uh, and, and get a room and, uh, and just relax so I wouldn't be all worn out the next day. It's about a 15 and a half hour drive. Driving at about 85 across West Texas. I hit Las Cruces and I thought, it's too early to stop. I'm still awake. I'm just going to keep going. I had 270 miles to go. I left here at 5 lost an hour going that way, rolled in about 7.30, and the first person that I wanted to see wasn't my son, wasn't my daughter-in-law, wasn't my grandson, it was my wife. I I cannot imagine life without her being a part of it. What I'm saying is far too many of us as Christians, it's easy for us to imagine a life apart from Christ. There even comes a point when Christians begin to Look forward to a time when they can put this whole church thing behind them. When they can get to, and those teenagers listen to me this morning, you need to get to the mindset where you realize that the best thing that you have in your life is a Savior that loves you. And we come to a place where we look at the reality of our service. If I, will, if I can't even love him enough to be faithful to a church service, if I can't love him enough to faithfully read his word, if I can't love him enough to faithfully pray, if I can't love him enough to share my faith, if I don't love him enough, the reality is, is that I simply have no, no, uh, no appreciation for the magnitude of my sin and I don't feel that he's forgiven me enough to warrant such love. He loves you. And he fully understands the price of forgiveness that forgiveness took. But we seldom do. We serve in proportion to our love. Secondly, on this point, I would say that I love in proportion to the forgiveness that I've obtained. Is that not what Jesus tells him? Which one loves him more? The one that he forgave the most? You've rightly discerned. And the reality this morning is, is that when I love, I love in proportion to the forgiveness that I have obtained. God, you, it took so much for you, you forgave me of so much. To not love him is unthinkable. But most people live in a world where they feel as if what's been forgiven them was so inconsequential. Necessary for their salvation, yes. Inconsequential. To their walk with God and to the magnitude of their impact on the world around them for the cause of Christ. It's not that big of a deal. I can go do what I want. Thanks for saving me. I'll see you when I get there. That's the way most Christians live. Sure, I'm glad I'm saved and on my way to heaven. God, don't bother me with anything else. I'll just uh, I'll be glad to see you when I get there. In the meantime, leave me alone. Let me live my life my way. And we look and we understand that I love in proportion to the forgiveness that I've obtained. And thirdly, that I interpret, as I interpret sin, I interpret forgiveness. How I interpret my sin impacts how I interpret how much God has forgiven me. My rea- the reality is this, if I don't value the sacrifice fully, if I don't believe that he's forgiven me of much The problem is that in my perception, in my mind, I have a distorted view of sin. And a correct view of sin and a correct view of the holiness of my God will set everything in my life back in order. We talked at the beginning about a reset. Our view of sin and our view of his holiness needs a hard reset in life. Listen, mediocre Christians, casual Christians do not understand what they have in Christ. Those that excuse and those that hide and those that distort the truth and those that uh, have every reason in the world why they're not going to put themselves in a position uh, to serve God, live for God, love God, be, uh, you know, what they're squandering their Christian life. And they're missing life's greatest opportunities and blessings. And they are, for, they are forfeiting their crowns in heaven and their eternal rewards forever. Why? Because we think we're Simon. We'd never say it. But the truth of how we live identifies us as Simon. But the reality is that we're just a woman that's unwelcome, that has an opportunity to decide to slip in, to weep, to break open a valuable alabaster box of ointment, to worship the one who forgave us of so much. What's your life like this morning, Christian? What's your Christian life like? I don't say that very often because in my mind there's no distinction. There's no such thing as a life in a Christian life. Uh, I'm either a Christian or I'm not. Do I live like it? Do I live like I understand what I have been forgiven? Do I love the reality is, is that everyone in this room this morning would say, yes, pastor, I love the Lord. But the equal opportunity is, or the, the equal truth is this, that the measure that you love equals the measure to which you perceive your forgiveness. You love this morning as you've been forgiven. Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for Simon and for this woman who is willing to be ridiculed, to be
0: demeaned,